today is going to be a lot like it was last week, only in the fact that this subject seems to be perplexing to some people. And so if you've gotten a bulletin, you're going to have a handout inside of it of what this is. But if you only got one bulletin, poor, bleh, too early to be speaking in tongues. If you only got one bulletin per family, you may want a handout of your own, which is fine. And we have these up here, and Zach looks like he is chomping at the bit. I can't tell because of the mask, but he's chomping at the bit to want to hand them out to you. So if anybody would like an extra handout here so that you have one, yes, no, anyone. Don't be shy. There we go. Be great. And I'm going to ask you to start off, we might bring some clarity with this, is if you take your Bibles and you turn to Acts chapter 20. If anyone needs a Bible as well, let us know. We've got Bibles back there. We can get you one. Pete looks like a willing servant back there. Notice I said looks like. <laughs> Just kidding. Everybody too serious this morning, okay? Everybody lighten up. Do we need to do some relaxation exercises or are we okay? We're good? Okay. Acts chapter 20. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be arrested. Uh, he knows that he's going to be held there, and he's going to see them for one last time. His time with them was sweet. He spent over three years, the church in Ephesus, ministering to them, discipling them, teaching them, building them up. But he makes a very interesting statement that I want us to take a look at. Now, I don't know for sure Paul was traveling, maybe he had some companions. I think we have a picture of what Paul may have looked like at that time. So we might want to look at that. I think that's what Paul looked like at that time. <laughs> what do we think? Pastor Steve, is that a faithful picture of what uh, Paul looked like at this time? Well, it used to be. <laughs> it's beautiful, isn't it? It's good stuff. Everybody look at chapter 20 of Acts, verse 24. Paul tells them, now watch this, because we're talking about the salvation of the soul, and I want you to see Paul's attitude. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. For what reason? So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Now stop there. Does everybody remember Jesus's words that we looked at? My food is to do the will of my Father and to accomplish or complete his work. Does everybody remember that? That's the same attitude that Paul has here. Now watch what he says, because he makes a very clear distinction that if we were reading too quickly, we would just pass over and not notice. He says, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice he understands that's his ministry. That is his ministry to the unsaved, is to speak to them about the grace, the gospel of the grace of God, and that is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But don't separate that from the next verse. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that all of you, notice talking to the elders, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, everybody see that? Will no longer see my face. The gospel of the grace of God is for the unsaved. The gospel of the kingdom is for the saved. And this is the difference that we're talking about between the salvation of the Spirit, which is everything that we covered in justification by faith, and the brand new identity that we have in Christ, and the reason why we spent so many numerous weeks 
going through it over and over and over is so that when we hit this idea that there is something to be called the salvation of the soul, that you would not begin to think that somehow that overshadowed or eclipsed the idea of the salvation of our spirit. So then we were talking about justification. Now we are talking about sanctification. The gospel of the grace of God is regarding justification. The gospel of the kingdom is regarding sanctification. Is everybody with me? That doesn't sound very sure. Okay, so just to give you a quick recap of last week, I tell you what, let's be productive while we're doing this. Turn to Mark 8 so that we can look at it one more time. To do a recap of last week, we talked about that we, as creations of God, unique from the animals, are made up in three parts, body, soul, spirit. When you hear the gospel and you come to faith in Christ, it is your spirit that is saved. Why is that? Because when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate of the fruit they were not supposed to, the spirit is what died. Their bodies continued on but began to deteriorate. Their souls still worked. Their souls consist of their mind, will, and emotions, but they were severely skewed and now bent towards sinful and evil things. But what separated at that moment? What separated was the spirit. And so when we talk about someone getting saved or we talk about believing in Jesus, it is your spirit that is saved in that moment and the Holy Spirit now takes up residence within your spirit. However, just because your spirit is saved doesn't mean that all of a sudden your mind, will, and emotions are perfect in their constitution. Would you agree? Okay, great. So we're on the same page. This is why Jesus speaks these words. Mark 8, look at verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, and that word life there is interchangeable with the word soul perfectly interchangeable. Why they translated it life, I don't know. I would love for someone to explain it to me. It says here, he will save his wishes to save his life in the here and now, will lose it. Or in other words, it will be ruined or destroyed, mind, will, and emotions. But whoever loses his life or his soul in the here and now, whoever chooses not to live out their own personal agenda and will, but instead submits themselves to the Son. Notice what it says. For my sake and the gospels, there's your proper motivation, will save it, will rescue it, will deliver it from uselessness is the idea. He says, for, and I want you to pay attention to verses 36, 37, 38. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his? Everybody see that? Same word for life exact same word. What good is it if you get everything this world has to offer, but you have nothing to show to Jesus at the judgment seat? It doesn't matter. Notice what he's saying next. Four, here's another explanation. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know what that says? It says that your mind, will, and emotions are worth a lot to God. That Jesus didn't just die to redeem our spirits. He died to redeem us entirely. And he is giving us that opportunity. If we will walk with him, we will have the opportunity to save our souls. Verse 38, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his fathers with the holy angels. Now, immediately we get on a subject like this and you think, good grief, this is serious. Yes, it's very serious. Good grief, this sucks all the fun and glory out of the Christian life. No, it doesn't. It is giving us incentive to live that life. That's exactly what it's doing. Now, we're going to engage this subject. I'm going to ask you to get out your handouts. I want to give you something that's going to be helpful to start with. Two points. Number one, if you know me, Bible interpretation is important. In fact, we have a little friend called Herman Udix that we hang out with a lot. Yes? Everybody remember him? And that's the art and science of Bible interpretation. I've found that if I read through the Bible, there are four principles that come to my mind that if I will just stay on those, I will have a lot less likely opportunity of driving my interpretation car off into a ditch somewhere. Number one, the Bible testifies of itself that it's always true. Now, why is this helpful? Because when you're reading a passage and you see something that looks like a contradiction, you can automatically be assured it is not a contradiction. Why? Because in order for something to be true, it has to be consistent. And if it's got a contradiction, you can't trust it, right? How many of us have kids? If there's a contradiction in their story, you cannot trust it, yes? Okay, the Bible is not like that. The Bible's completely consistent. Number two, justification or being declared righteous by God is by his grace alone towards us through personal faith that we have alone as a response to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And if you've noticed, I've underlined alone. Why? Because the word alone means by itself. And so you have one crowd that wants to try to muddy that up by saying, well, here are the things that you need to do so that God will accept you. And they put works on the front end, or they'll say, now that you're saved, you got to do this, or you're not really saved. Maybe you're kind of saved. We're not for sure if you ever were really saved, or you've lost your salvation on the other end. No, that doesn't make it faith alone. And so you've got to get rid of those side things and keep the main thing the main thing. Well, this is what the Bible preaches. And if we always keep that in mind, that works are never a component of that situation, we'll be just fine. Number three, and this is one that gets people real bad sometimes, not here, but whenever you talk about it, once you're saved, you're always saved. There is nothing that can remove you from the mighty grasp of God's love. You are eternally secure, whether you feel like it or not. If you don't feel like it, that means that we have an assurance issue that needs to be addressed with Scripture, and only the promises of God can cure that. But if you're busy looking at your work saying, well, I don't know I'm saved because I'm doing this and this and this, anybody ever known a Christian that sins like crazy or does crazy things like that? Sure, I mean, nobody in here ever does that, but we know those people, right? They go to those other churches, we know those people. They're saved, and they need assurance of their salvation. Once they're saved, they're always saved. Why? Because it's, it's all based on the work that God has done through Christ and not us, not our work. But the fourth one really gets people messed up, and some people don't even know this exists. And that is the fact that the Bema is for believers. That anytime you're addressing a passage, and it deals with the idea of Christians in regards to works, it is always, always, every time in connection to rewards. In fact, I would challenge you that you would have a hard time going three to four pages in your New Testament without finding some passage that relates to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, in some way. 
I guarantee you, read the New Testament through, take that challenge, look at it. If you keep those four things in mind and understanding that every passage has a context, you are not going to be going off the road in how you interpret. So hopefully that makes this a little bit easier when you're studying through yourself and you go, well, what about this? Keep these four things in mind and look at it in context, you'll be fine. Another problem that we have that often messes us up is the word salvation. If we only think of it in one way, go to heaven when we die, we've missed out on at least seven other uses of this word. Salvation can mean, I got saved, past tense, justification. I am being saved right now. That's sanctification. I will be saved. That's glorification. So there's three tenses of salvation there. We also have deliverance from enemies, deliverance from a hard time. You know, if the Democrats get in there, we're going to get deliverance from our student loans, rescue. But you know what? Praise God. I don't know. But anyway, I'm a little conflicted about that. Politics aside, the woman who had the issue of blood, when she was aged, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And he turned around and said, who touched me? He looked at her and he said, let me tell you, your faith has, says healed, The word is actually saved. But salvation can mean heal. Saved can mean heal, rescue, deliverance. All of those things are on the table as far as physical relation of that. So anytime we see the word salvation, we got to ask ourselves a question, salvation from what? That's only a good question to ask. Now, when we say this, we're going to get into our test cases, our pertinent passages. So turn with me to the book of James. James is a perfect book regarding the salvation of the soul. It has everything to do with how a Christian lives their life, how they conduct their mind, will, and emotions. Now, me just saying that should already give us the understanding that we are talking about people who are already justified. So the question about the salvation of soul being, does that pertain to heaven or hell? That should already be off the table. We shouldn't worry about that whatsoever. And so since we have to deal with passages in context, I want to show you some things that are important about James in order to help us understand the particular passages we're going to look at. The first thing I want you to see is James 1.18. And the reason is because James makes a statement about his audience. Now, real quick, what makes James interesting is it is the first book of the New Testament that was ever written. It was probably written early 40s A.D., None of the other books have been written at this point. This is the first one. And so this is why it's got a really uh, uh, amazing Jewish tone to the entire thing. But chances are, this was also written at a time where the gospel had not even gone out to the Gentiles yet. Everything that took place between Peter and Cornelius and Acts had not even happened yet. Because that was a turning point to recognize, oh my gosh, the grace of God has now gone to the Gentiles as well. It didn't just stay with the Jews. So chances are this was written very early on and was written before Gentiles had ever had the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. So look at 118. Notice it says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Notice the personal pronoun includes James with his audience. He brought us forth. How? By the word of truth. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. You hear the gospel and you respond to it in faith. Notice, so that, here's the reason, we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In other words, we have been redeemed for the purpose of demonstrating good works. However, good works are not contingent upon whether or not we have been saved. 
So notice what brings us forth is the Word of God. Now, would we all agree, just from that one statement there, James's audience is a, is a Christian audience, yes? Believers in Christ, brothers and sisters, yes? Nobody wants to claim them? I'll claim them. Yes? Why are we not happy today? I've only got so much time. Don't make this hard. Can't see it. Oh, we can't see your smiles because of the mask. But everybody's smiling ridiculously, right? Right? Yeah, smile. David, smile for me. Thank you, brother. David's like, this is terrible. All right, moving on. <clears throat> Here we go. I'm just picking on him. So go back to, ch- go back to chapter uh, 1, verse 2. Now, this is what the book is about all the way through. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What's this book about? How to handle trials. How to handle hardships. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, and don't get mad at me, okay? Wearing a mask was not a trial for James's time. This is an inconvenience. It's not a trial. Nobody's stealing your stuff. Nobody's casting you out of labor unions. It's not getting difficult for you to find work in the situation because of your Christian faith. You're not being ridiculed and your family mocked because of Jesus Christ. These are the type of trials what the Bible is talking about, okay? So notice, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces something, endurance. Or some of you may have the translation to say steadfastness. In other words, when a hard time comes because of you holding fast to Jesus Christ and taking a stand as a Christian, our initial reaction is, ugh, we get very Charlie Brown and Eeyore about the whole thing. Call a time out and back up and look at it from God's perspective. Because I'm in this situation, God is going to do something, and I have all reason to have joy because he is going to grow me because of this. Now, I know what you're saying, but I don't like growing. It's worth it. So what he's saying is, is there's going to be a production that happens in our lives. Steadfastness, stick with itness. Don't give up. Now watch this, verse four, and let endurance have its perfect result. Don't get in there and stop the trial by a sinful solution. This has gone long enough. We're not going to wait on the Lord anymore. We're going to get it done now. Don't do that. Don't do that. Wait on the Lord to provide the solution. Why? Because he is going to teach us endurance. And when this takes place, look at the promise that happens here. So that, here's the reason, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you realize that's possible for a Christian? That you can be perfect and complete. The idea is fully grown and mature And any time that you are facing life, you're not scraping for answers. You've already got all the answers. Not because of you, but because all that God has done to grow you. Everybody with me? So this is a pretty big deal here. Not cutting the trial short, but instead letting it play out, waiting on the Lord, watching him provide, and because your relationship, your, or let me say it this way, your fellowship is more tethered together tightly, you are now growing in a more severe way with him. All excellent and good stuff. Sounds real good when we talk about it, when we're in the thick of it. We're kind of second-guessing if Scripture's really true, okay? But notice it is. Remember, number one is telling us the truth. Now, I want you to look at verse 12. 
because he goes on to talk about this situation. If you need help, ask of it of God. Exalt yourself in your lowly position. He's doing good things here. And look what he says in verse 12. Blessed is a man who, everybody see it? Perseveres under what? Trial. Sticks with it when the going gets hard. Holds fast to God's word, even though everything in this world is telling you to walk away, give up, quit. No, stick with it. And look what it says here. For, explanation, once he has been approved, and that word be approved, if you've got the NASB and you've got little marginal notes, you'll see that it's the idea of passing a test. Once that you've qualified is the idea. Once that you've been found to have run the race faithfully, look what it says here. It says, he will receive, here it is, the crown of life. I can't tell you how many times you could go to a, a library that has commentaries in it, pull it off the shelf, open it up, and they're going to tell you this crown right here is actually eternal life because you'll only know if you're really truly saved is if you endure to the end. Has James told you that the possibility of giving up and not seeing this trial out is there? Has he told you that's a possibility? Yeah, it's possible for Christians to give up in the midst of hardship. It is. That in no way negates their salvation. Why? They didn't do anything to get saved. When the world makes us think we can do it to lose it, or somehow think we didn't have it in the first place. It's all based on the promises of God, not on my performance. So when we go back to this, understand, for those who stick with it, there's major incentive involved. God wants to give you something because of your faithfulness, and it is the crown of life. And actually, if you compare this, this crown is brought up again in the book of Revelation. In fact, let me see where I have that in my notes. I think it's on page two that I've given to you here. In Revelation 2.10, the crown of life has two requirements for obtaining it. First, one must pass the test of hardship, which would be synonymous with faithful endurance. And second, the endurance must be done because of one's affection of Christ. Now, I cut the verse short, but watch this. The crown of life, now watch, which the Lord has promised to those who, what's it say? Love him. There's the motivation. Notice the motivation isn't, I'm going to get a reward, yay me! No, I guarantee if you go into it like that, you're not getting one. The idea is, because Jesus is worth it, and because his word has never failed me, I will stick out this trial. And because of that, because of your love for him, whoever loves me will do what? What's the verse say? Keep my what? Commandments. Whoever loves me will keep my commandments because we've sought to be faithful and obedient to him and that obedience manifests our love for him. Guess what? He wants to reward you with a crown. Not everybody gets this crown. It's only given to those people who love him and have passed the test. That's who it's for. Now, with that being said, what's interesting about this word crown, there are two types of crown that are mentioned uh, in the scriptures. One is diadema. And the other one is Stephanus. And the Stephanus crown is interesting because it's a victor's crown. Back then, of course, with the Greeks and the Romans, the games were a big deal. So we celebrate the Olympics like that. This is somebody who got that laurel wreath to put on because they had placed first, because they ran the race in such a way as to win the prize. And by doing so, they were crowned with a crown that nobody else was able to be crowned with. This is why in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul encourages them, run the race in such a way as to win the prize. Be faithful and endure to the end of it. Why? Because God has exponentially greater things that he wants to give to you in conjunction with your faithfulness. So it's a good thing. 
It's an amazing thing. Remember, God is a giver. Now let's move down here. He talks about how God is never responsible for our sin. This idea that God has predestined people to sin is heresy. Uh, That violates the character of God. If you move on down as far as how sin happens, uh, verse 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, and the lust was conceived. It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, when it's brought forth to completion, it brings forth what? What does it say? Death, and that's for the Christian. Remember, he's writing to Christians here. Now move to 19, because 19 gives you the divisions of this book. It's kind of the purpose statement of this book, but he brings up something very interesting about the salvation of the soul. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be, number one, quick to hear, number two, slow to speak, number three, slow to anger. And here's the reason why. Notice your causal conjunction, verse 24. Watch this. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Has anybody ever responded in anger to a situation that was suddenly presented to you? Never. Never. You wouldn't find an angry person in this building, would you? My son was acting a fool last night while we were trying to have prayer for bedtime. And I've told him for months, son, when we're praying, we're talking to God. We don't act like that. We don't act like that. Finally, I stopped my prayer and I said, never hear you what you did. Guess what that accomplished? Nothing. That was me acting like a fool. Anger accomplishes nothing. It, it will never, get this, it will never bring forth the righteousness that God wants to manifest in our, cell, in our lives. Practical righteousness will never come forward when we're hot-headed and steamed about things and dealing with it in that situation. It will never happen. And that's what God wants to do in each and every one of us, getting ourselves and our agenda out of the way so that righteousness can be produced through us. That's a beautiful calling. That's what he wants to do with our lives. He wants Jesus to live his life through us. Now, watch this because remember, context, it's all tethered together. Let me read 20 again. The anger of man does not achieve, does not accomplish or produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, therefore, and as good Bible students, what do we ask? What's that therefore? Because the anger of man cannot bring forth the righteousness of God in our living situations. Look what it says. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, which is able to save your life. Does everybody see this? Now, let's break this down. On page two, you're going to see that I've given you a little sidebar there of negative things that go on and of positive things that go on. And I want you to watch this. I've varied the translation a little bit from the research of the words here to maybe bring it out some. So so don't get confused if it doesn't match up with what you're seeing in the NASB. But look what it says. Therefore, in other words, in light of the fact that man's anger will not produce God's righteousness, putting aside, this word actually means to strip off clothes. It means the idea that you've been out mowing the yard for forever. You're hot and sweaty and gross. You're like, this stuff's got to go because I am stinky. That's the idea. Strip it off. Get rid of it. Okay? Nobody else stinky when they mow the yard? Just me. Okay, good. All filthiness, which is the idea of being defiled morally. 
And notice here, and the abundance of wickedness. In other words, you're involved in vice or you're catering to your depravity. Now, time out. These are Christians. These are justified people that James is giving this directive to. The idea here is fleshly behaviors and impurities, stuff that we dabble in in our Monday through Saturday existence. The things that we keep private secret. Nobody needs to know about them. Well, this isn't going to harm anybody but myself. The rationalizations that make ourselves feel better about sinful attitudes and things that we crowd around us. Now watch this. It says here, that comes so naturally to the old man. These things are all, and if you want to underline anything in this, underline this. They're all hindrances to what comes next. Now let me say this real quick, because James's prescription for the salvation of the soul is no different for his audience than it is for us. If we have filthiness and rampant wickedness in our lives, if this is stuff that is going on, and I don't know what that manifests like in your life, only you know and the Holy Spirit knows. He's saying you need to strip that off like a useless garment and cast it aside. Why? Because now that's the negative. Get rid of the garbage. And now look at the positive. Look what it says. In what? Watch out, that's a dangerous word. It's a spiritual bear trap. Why is that? Because it'll cost you something. See, we have no problem demanding things from other people as long as we don't have to humble ourselves to work with them. We have no problem talking about our rights, our demands, what we want to cover around ourselves, justifying sin that we care about and love and want to embrace. We have no problems with those things because the person we're serving is us. And guess what? When we're serving ourselves, there's no need for humility there. None. Everybody else better be humble in our presence. But as far as us humbling ourselves, how dare you say I need to do that? But notice what James is saying you got to get the garbage out so you can see clearly. And then you bring yourself low. Some people have defined humility as the idea of just not thinking of yourself at all. You are not a factor in this idea. When I look through the lexicon, here's what I found written there. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Now, we don't know anybody like that either, do we? Man, I did a really great job there. That was really good of me. Uh, here's the one that always gets me. I'm doing really good in my walk with the Lord right now. Yeah, because it's all based on me and how well I'm doing, right? And all God's people said, no, not at all. But look what it says. With humility, an attitude or demeanor that emphasizes bringing oneself low. In other words, the attitude is the starting point in progressing in a positive direction. Or let's say it this way. Humility is an indispensable first ingredient to saving the soul. In humility, look what it says. Receive what? Receive the what? The word. What's that? The very thing you have spread out on your lap. The very thing that we have an abundance of in America. But notice where it's at. Everybody see the word implanted? The idea there is inborn. In other words, the word of God that already dwells within you. Receive it. Another evidence that they're Christians because the word of God is already dwelling within them. Receive it. Do you believe it? Have you subscribed to it? Or have you actually embraced it as a framework of which to live your life and to view your world? Let me give you one that, that, that we've known before, but it's counterculture is all get out. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What does that one verse tell me? I can't think correctly about any subject if I don't start with the creator. That's what it's telling me. Does the world think like that? No. I love flipping through the little National Geographic things. You know, is the Bible true? Like somehow the Bible needs to be measured up to what their standard is they're going to set. You got that backwards, guys. The Bible's a standard. Is your show true? That's what I want to know. There's a big difference there. But notice it all comes down to whether or not we have accepted the word of God for what it claims about itself. How can you do that? Only in humility. Only in attitude of humility. So we come to the word, teachable, submitting ourselves to it, saying the very dangerous prayer, Lord, whatever you want from my life, I'm laying it down for you. Anybody prayed that lately? Gosh, it's dangerous. You know why? Because God will do something with you. God will change your life. God might take you like he did Roxanne and send her amongst the snakes in Africa. I still pull out that picture of Jim holding that snake like this. I think they grilled it up and ate it. I think they did. Hey, don't judge. God obviously brought him to a point where he could eat a snake. I find something very biblical about that. Anyway, moving on. So notice it says here, receive the word implanted. Why would I need to do that? Because if my attitude is humility, and if I'm embracing the word of God, those are the necessary ingredients to save my soul, to redeem my life, to deliver my mind, will, and emotions. Would you agree? I think we'd have a hard time arguing against that. So notice, humility is an indispensable attitude that you have to have. The word of God alone is the indispensable tool that trains us in that direction. How you live your life matters. It matters. Now, if you would, turn over your page to page three because I've given you a little diagram here. We read Mark 8 to start with, 34 through 37, 38, we read in there. But in particular, it's interesting because the ingredients that Jesus mentions in Mark 8 match up perfectly with James 1.21. Look at this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. What constitutes denying ourselves? Well, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Why? Because we like filthiness and we like wickedness. And it's what we're really comfortable with because it's very self-serving. Don't act like because we're believers in Christ that somehow we're immune to sin. We're not. If anything, we're called to have a proper perspective about ourselves in relation to sin and deal with our sin effectively according to the Word of God. This is the whole reason why we do 1 John 1, 9 before we get into the Word. Deal with our sin. Call it sin as God has called it. Confess it and then trust him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is that? Because now we're back in harmonious fellowship with him. Deal with our sin as God says to deal with it. So we get rid of all filthiness, all wickedness. That's what it is to deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow me. What does it take to take up a cross? I guarantee you this, it starts with humility. The cross was a very humbling situation for Jesus. We play it really safe in our movies, and I understand why, but let's not forget something. Not only was he beaten and bloodied, not only were people mocking him and spitting on him and throwing things at him, not only did he have a crown of thorns on his head, he was completely naked. It was not this cleverly placed cloth that they all have in all of these pictures. 
The Son of God was laid bare for all to see. Public humiliation. In humility, receive his word. Get ourselves out of the way and embrace the God-inspired text. Because notice what the result is. Because whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What's the result we see in James? Save your souls. Exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. Humility in the word of God. Get rid of the hindrances. Now, if you notice down at the bottom, I want to continue with context so that you see the next instance because James actually talks about the salvation of the soul twice. And all of this surrounds that theme and how you deal with trial. So if you want to just walk through this real quick, and you can read James later and see how this goes together. James covers some serious ground for the Christian in relation to doing the word. In fact, if you remember after verse 21, we have the ancient principle, do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers who do not deceive themselves. Everybody remember that? Very important stuff. If you're someone who has the word, but you're not doing the word, you are self-deluded. You have defrauded yourself of a life that could be lived in obedience. So notice, chapter 2, avoiding favoritism within the body of Christ and being merciful in our treatment to our brothers and sisters, knowing that such a demeanor will bring about a merciful judgment from Christ. Also, good deeds are a benefit to the body of Christ while also serving to energize one's faith by serving others. The believer in Christ is saved from a merciless judgment before Christ. In that passage, James 2, verses 14 through 26, is always controversial with people. I encourage you to study that out and read it in context. Uh, as far as uh, chapter 3, teachers of the word will incur a stricter judgment before the Lord, and the tongue is the litmus test of whether or not one is walking in righteousness. If we want to know if we're walking in righteousness, what's coming out of our mouth? Because what comes out of our mouth exposes the heart. Also in chapter 3, good behavior in the body of Christ speaks louder than words. Jealousy and selfishness are qualities of the evil one. Godly wisdom produces fruit when exercised with good deeds. Turn over to the last page. Chapter 4, selfishness produces wrath, making it a hindrance to righteousness being produced in the believer's life. The cure for selfishness is humble submission to God. This will bring purity to our lives. We are no longer to live in judgment of others. Instead, we're to look at the Lord's will for our lives. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn over to James 4. Let me show you this real quick because it's important what it says. James 4, look at verse 7, submit. In other words, that word hypostasis is the idea of voluntarily subjecting yourself to another, willingly bringing yourself under the headship of another person. That's what that word submit means. Submit to God. Look down at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. If we're to be made much of, it's because God's making the much of us, not because we're making the much of ourselves. So notice you have this constant idea pushing forward on those fronts of humility. Uh, in chapter 5, the one of riches increases our selfishness, which again produces wrath and anger. Uh, the end of 5, uh, the believer who seeks to produce righteousness in the midst of their trial looks to wait patiently upon the Lord in light of his imminent return. And then towards the end of 5, James offers a series of prescriptions for those who are struggling with sickness and sin. And then this brings us to chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Now, don't miss this. Verse 19, my brethren... If any among you strays, now watch that, any among you, so they're believers in Christ, he called them my brethren, and there's someone who gets off the path, right? Follow the yellow brick road. Nope, where'd they get in trouble? When they went across that field of flowers, 
Whoever told them that was okay, why did not Dorothy get a lawnmower and mow her way through the yellow brick road? I do not know. And here's another thing. How did flowers like that grow on the yellow brick road? Anybody ever thought of this? No. See, you're learning more than just the scripture today. Anyway, moving on. But it says here, if any among you strays, losing their way from the truth, what's the truth? God's word. In other words, they're no longer receiving the implanted word. So they've decided to start rejecting it. Do you know a believer like that? Now watch this. And one turns him back. In other words, they mount up a search and rescue party for the wayward believer. Now you've got a brother or sister in Christ who has departed from the implanted word, and one of you turns them back. Who's the you? Who's the you there? One of you turns them back. It's us. It's you and it's me. It's believers who are holding fast to the implanted word that are going after these people. Or let's say it this way. Every one of us is accountable to one another within the body of Christ to have a growing and thriving relationship, fellowship blossoming with him. Every one of us, every one of us like, well, I don't want to say anything, man, get rid of that mess. That's the enemy trying to diffuse you from being active and bringing somebody back from a pit because that person, watch what happens here. Let him know that he who turned a sinner, and why is that? Because they're, they're, they're mounted up in error. From the error of his way will, look what it says, save his what? You're going to save his life. You're going to save her body, or sorry, mind, will, and emotions is the idea. From, what's the word? Death, separation. The idea there is not eternal condemnation. That's not what we're looking at but a ruin of their life, complete destruction, being permanently placed out of fellowship with the Lord. I actually see that in Hebrews chapter six. The fact that their life is cut short, that's 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, the killing of his body, so that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. Still a believer in Christ but suffering the penalty of physical death because of ongoing sin in their life. The Bible doesn't play around. Or let me say it this way. God has no problem disciplining his kids. We are his children. He will discipline us as he sees fit. And some of us have got thick noggins. He will knock to try to get our attention. He has no problem going after his kids. He says here, the one who turns a sinner from his error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You say, wait a second. If Jesus Christ has already died for all sins, how in the world could a multitude of sins be covered or be removed? Did Jesus die for all sin? Yes, he did. But are we still supposed to confess our sins? Yes, we are. So what happened is on the cross, judicially, sin was paid for and dealt with. Done deal. So we no longer have an issue, and if you believe in Christ, you've been brought into a relationship with the Father, yes? The Son made that connection possible. But it's ongoing sin in our lives or sin that we're not confessing or entertaining that causes a disruption in fellowship with Him. And so what we actually find is this believer, because they've gone off in a sinful path and have rejected the implanted Word, has actually got a disruption, distraction, distortion, whatever you want to say, a separation in their fellowship opportunity. However, they're never removed from relationship with the Father. 
What are we doing? By mounting up a search and rescue situation, we are actually rescuing their lives from the ruin that will happen if they continue in that path, regardless of how death is used here. It's going to end badly. The wages of sin are nothing surprising. Everybody see this? So what do we understand about the salvation of the soul so far? Next week, we're going we're gonna to deal more with the salvation of the soul. But just for this first part, here's what we see. Number one, if we have filthiness and rampant wickedness in our lives, our soul is not being saved at this moment. We're not doing anything as far as I am being saved right now. We may have little steps that we've done with the Lord. He may be really trying to get our attention to bring some things to convict our heart so that we will see what we're involved in and strip it off and cast it away so that we can humbly receive the implanted word. Number two, what we see is that humility is the attitude that we have to have. Number three, the word of God is indispensable in leading us in the path of the salvation of the soul. And number four, salvation of the soul is a fellowship issue. And us brothers and sisters are responsible for seeing every one of our brothers and sisters around us. Their souls saved, their lives rescued and redeemed. Now, if this has gotten confusing for you, wait until next week. Next week, we'll, com- we'll complete it. We'll complete this whole idea. It's probably a very different way of thinking. But if it's something that you just can't get away from, email me. My email is on the back of our bulletins here. Send me an email. Here's what I don't understand about this. Okay, everybody with me? All right, let's pray. Father God in heaven, I pray that we would recognize right now by the conviction of your spirit any filthiness, any rampant wickedness that we've entertained in our lives, Uh, recognizing that just because we're in Christ doesn't mean that we are uh, completely free from the longings of the flesh, that we're to reject those things, we're to hold fast to our identity in Christ and so live in light of that. Uh, But Father, sin is still alive toward us and, and, and desires us, Lord. Father, I pray that we resist those things, seeing that your word is infinitely better. Please cultivate humility in us, that we would embrace your word, live your word, be saturated in your word, that your word would dwell richly in us, and that we would pursue fellowship with you, growing, growing in our love, growing in our care for one another, growing in our affection for you. Thank you, God, that you've given us these warnings and these admonitions and these encouragements. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.